Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, God's Providence, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Why Christians Aren't Fatalists. Some time ago, the Vancouver Sun ran an article, and it said, A new study published in the March issue of Sociology of Religion suggests that roughly one-third of Americans believe in a God in a counterproductive way, they said. And, oh, what could that be? I mean, I was sitting at the edge of my seat, and so the article went on. They believe in fate, in predestination. Now, that had my attention. Is fate the same as the belief in predestination? And then without even an explanation as to how that was so, the article went on to say that a third of Americans agreed with the statement, there's no sense in planning a lot because ultimately my fate is in God's hands. And then the article went on to say that the healthy belief in God consisted in believing that we are autonomous individuals and that the divine was a supporter or a companion, but not a director of our lives. You know, sometimes when I read an article like this, well, I I kind of feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I don't know where to start. I'm fairly sure that Ephesians 1 verse 11 would constitute what those supposed researchers called an unhealthy spirituality. You remember Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then there is, of course, the idea in the newspaper article that, you know, Ephesians 1.11, the word predestination, well, that's the same idea as the idea of fate. And then there's the idea that acting autonomously apart from God and only seeing God as an encourager as we make our own life's decisions, well, they say that's the healthy way to go. And then there's the statement that those who disagree must agree with the statement that there's no sense planning because my fate's in God's hands. I wonder if it might shock the researchers to hear that there are those of us who do a lot of planning for the very reason that we know that our future is in God's hands. As I said, where does one even start? So let's get beyond the question of predestination, which unfortunately, even for many Christians, is is fraught with misunderstanding and, and prejudice and reaction. Let's get back to what we've been talking about in this series, the providence of God. And here's the question. When we say that God providentially rules over all things, including the future, are we then left with a belief in fate? There's nothing we can do. The future is already determined. Well, what is fate? Fate is the idea that whatever will happen is simply destined to happen or predestined to happen. You know, fate's the idea that all the events in your life are already predetermined and that they are predetermined either by, you know, the alignment of the stars or by some other impersonal force. You in this system are like a beetle floating down the Niagara River heading for the falls. Whether you struggle or not, your outcome is going to be the same. Now, I would say that such a view of things leaves us feeling helpless, never knowing whether fate will turn out to be to our advantage or to our disadvantage. You know, it's said that the belief in fate can help relieve stress. Since things are out of your hand, well, there's no sense in stressing over things. But it does also leave us this helpless feeling that what we do simply doesn't matter. 
But what does the Bible actually teach? Let's start with an incident that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 10. The chapter describes a battle between the combined forces of Ammon and Syria fighting against Israel, who were under the command of King David. The entire thing started off innocently enough. David had a warm and rich relationship with the king of Ammon, and it seems there would have been peace and no doubt a trading relationship between the two nations. Think today of Rabbah. Rabbah is the capital of Ammon. That's Ammon today, the capital of the nation of Jordan today, and you get the idea. For Israel, having a neighbor to their immediate east who was a friend and a reliable ally, well, that was very important for their security. But then came the time of transition of leadership. The king of Ammon dies, and he's replaced by his son, a man named Hanun. David realizes how important it is to be on good terms with the new king as quickly as possible, and so he sends key officials from his court in Jerusalem to Rabbah to mourn the death of the old king and to cement an early relationship of friendship with his son. But somehow, and we don't exactly know how it happens, but everything goes wrong. Hanun believes that David's men are spies. The key princes of the Ammonites make this charge, and everything starts to go sideways. They embarrass and humiliate David's men to the point of holding them down, shaving off half of their beards, cutting their clothes in half, and making them leave the city half-naked and utterly ashamed. Now, that incident only escalates, and in no time, the two nations, once friends, are on the brink of war. The Ammonites quickly realize that Israel is militarily stronger than they are, and so the Ammonites hire an army of 33,000 mercenaries, a considerable armed force of 33,000 highly trained fighters, all coming from Syria to bolster their troops. And finally, the armies meet on the battlefield, and as they line up, Joab, David's commander, finds out he's been tricked before the battle even began. The combined forces of Syria and Ammon have managed to gain an advantage before the first clash of troops. They have so managed to arrange things on the battlefield so that Israel will fight on two fronts, in the front and in the rear. It turns out Israel is surrounded. Well, Joab, like a good battle commander, recognizes instantly that he's in a very difficult spot, and if he doesn't remain calm, things will turn out very badly. So listen to 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and arrayed them against the Ammonites. Well, in short, he divides his men into two companies, a larger one to fight the Ammonites. But here's where his strategy comes in. Joab takes a smaller fighting force made up of his elite troops, the most effective ones he has, to strike the Syrians hard. And the reason that the Syrians are simply mercenaries, they're soldiers for hire. And if they have a very sudden and quick loss at the outset of the battle, they may just break ranks and run. After all, they're in this for the money, not to lose their lives. The Syrians are not fighting for their homes the way the Ammonites are. And that's why his larger force faces Ammon. That will be the longer and more drawn-out battle, and he has time on his hands there. Now, that's a very good and, and sound strategy. And in the end, as you know, this is a strategy that works brilliantly. Israel wins this battle. But that's not the point I want to make. 
Just before the battle engages, Joab has final words for his commanders and his troops, and we find those words in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. He says, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and, listen now, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I hope you catch the significance of those words. I mean, consider his last words. May the Lord do what seems good to him. In the end, says Joab, God will have his way on this battlefield. In the end, this matter is not in our hands. It's firmly in God's hands. That's that's Joab's theology. This battle will be decided by the set plans of God. Now, if that sounds like fate and resignation to you, well, you'd be wrong. When Joab calls on his people to be of good courage, that is, to fight well, to be disciplined in the fight, not to shrink back when the battle grows around them, he tells them to act with courage because, in his words, they're fighting for the cities of our God. Now, those are not just words. Joab was assured that God made eternal promises to Abraham. He knew that Israel is the chosen people of God. He knows that through Moses, God has promised his people the land they occupied. Those cities that Joab spoke of were part of God's unbreakable covenant with his people. And that was the very reason that Joab told his commanders to be courageous. You can be courageous, he says, because our future is in the hands of a God who has made great and precious promises to us. You fight hard, remembering those promises, and Israel did. See, I find it interesting that a confidence that God's providence rules didn't lead either David or Joab to a placid resignation. They didn't say, well, whatever happens is, I guess, just going to happen. The confidence in God's providence leads to courage and to taking action. That's because it comes out of the knowledge that the promises of God are good. And because of that, we can approach the task before us with confidence that is not felt by the person who has no such faith. The Back to the Bible Canada blog page has recently seen some exciting changes. So in addition to Dr. John's blogs, we'll now be having regular monthly blog contributions from special ministry guests and friends of the ministry. So make sure to receive the Back to the Bible Canada Dr. John and Company blogs each week by signing up for our audio mail or download our Back to the Bible Canada app or just visit backtothebible.ca every week. Timely, interesting, biblical perspective sharing thoughts about faith, life, and culture with the Bible at the very center. To check out the Dr. John and Company blog page, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. And remember to ask for your free ministry resource, 10 Questions About Money Matters, during the month of August. Is it that a belief in providence leads to action rather than passive acceptance that, you know, whatever happens is whatever happens? In other words, does a belief in providence lead to an active life? Is it true that when we work and when we plan and when we do a host of other things, we do so on the basis of providence? Well, yes, it is. 
let's look at a number of New Testament passages in which a strong confidence in God's meticulous sovereignty, his providential designs, leads to anything but passivity. Indeed, a doctrine of providence always leads to acting, to doing, to working hard, to planning, to being courageous and never giving up. Let's find this in Paul's missionary activities as is recorded in the book of Acts. You know, in Acts chapter 18, we find Paul in the Greek city of Corinth. At that time, it was the largest and most influential city in Greece. He has come to spread the gospel, but he has reasons to be fearful. You see, prior to this, as we have learned from Acts 16, he had received a private vision in which a man stood before him from Macedonia, which is in the northern area of Greece. The man is begging Paul to come to Macedonia and help him, and for that matter, the Greek people. And Paul takes this to be a call of God. Remember, he's always mindful that he's not acting autonomously. He is, in fact, a slave of Christ Jesus, one who has been set apart before he was born to share the gospel. So he goes to Macedonia, sets foot in a place called Neapolis. And from there, he walks inland to the largest city in the area. It's a city named Philippi. He wins his first European convert to Christ. It's a a woman named Lydia, and from that, a number of others. Eventually, through a series of events, the government officials of Philippi think Paul is a threat. They have him beaten, and he's thrown into prison. After a series of events, which includes the salvation of the jailer, the city officials show up and throw Paul out of town. He begins to move south on the Greek peninsula, and he comes to another significant city, Thessalonica. There, a jealous mob from the synagogue sets the city into an uproar, and Paul's companion have to sneak him out of the city at night just to save his life. He has a more receptive audience in Berea, but when he arrives in Athens, he's able to win only a few converts. The city is full of idols, and the philosophers there call him a babbler. He sets sail going further south, and he arrives in Corinth, having been imprisoned, scourged with Roman whips, mocked in public, and counted as a public nuisance and a disturber of the peace and an enemy of the state. I mean, you have to wonder what Paul's state of mind was when he finally arrived in Corinth. I mean, this was the prize. This was the most important city. If the gospel takes root there— That will form a considerable base of influence. If it doesn't, much of his work is in danger. One gets the sense that even though he is immediately at work, his internal condition, well, let's say it mildly, well, he must have been fragile. And that's when it happens. You see, our doctrine of providence comes into play. I'm reading Acts 18, 9 to 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That's a very curious phrase. I have many in this city who are my people. I mean, what can that possibly mean? You know, in the New Testament, those who are his, that is, those who are God's people, are those who have come to believe in the gospel. But we know that the gospel had never been heard in Corinth before. Paul was the first one. And yet, what must Paul have concluded from those words? Well, it must mean that God, who directs and controls all things, had already directed that there would be in that city a great company of men and women who would be saved. But notice that doesn't make Paul passive. It wakes him up. He's already been kicked out of the synagogue after he has won some of the Jewish people to faith there. 
And now he sets up in a large house of a Roman man named Titius Justus. Now, how he met this man, I mean, we're not told, but he did. He networked. He looked for a place to meet. He set up worship services. He extended his influence network. He led people to Christ. He trained up key leaders. He set in place all the foundations for a church, and he stayed there for a year and a half working night and day. I mean, don't you see that when God told Paul that he already had providentially arranged for the conversion of a great company of people in Corinth, Paul didn't just sit back and wait because, you know, after all, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Instead, his attitude was that if God was in this, and providentially arranged for a successful church, then in that case, well, he simply couldn't give up. How could he fail if God was for him? Who could then be against him? Well, let's move forward and see what Paul himself thinks about God controlling all things and his personal involvement. You know, his very last letter, it's 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy was written very shortly before his execution in Rome. And there Paul writes his young disciple, Timothy. He reminds Timothy of the gospel he's been preaching, and that he also tells him that for this reason, he has been suffering bound as a criminal. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Does that strike you as a strange statement? I mean, if they're the elect, that is, God has elected them unto eternal life, then The matter of their eternal future, well, that's in God's hands and and not in Paul's. And in fact, Paul did believe that. You know, in Ephesians 1, he tells believers that they were chosen before the foundation of the world. And in Romans 9, 16, he assures believers that their salvation doesn't depend on their weak and vacillating wills, but on God who has mercy. I mean, Paul never wavered from that position. And yet, rather than passively sitting back and saying, well, I guess God's will is going to be done, his reaction to those truths is very different than that. He says, since the elect are the elect, I will endure everything for them. There will be no end to sacrifice and effort on my part. I will continue to push forward until God in his providence calls me home. You know, at some level, we do well to try to understand how the providence of God and human effort actually work together. So let me suggest a solution, one that's found in the text of Scripture. I'm going to Romans 10, 14 to 15, written by the same Paul, who seems to understand both providence and human effort quite well. And there he writes, How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So let's follow that progression of thought. God has determined to save a great company of men and women. But they can't be saved unless they hear the gospel and then repent and believe. But they simply can't do that for they have never had anyone explain the gospel to them, and so they're going to die in ignorance of so great a salvation. What's required is someone to preach to them. But that means that someone is going to have to support the preacher or to send out the preacher to make sure that the message gets out. And so in his providential designs, God raises up preachers and teachers and evangelists and missionaries and faithful men and women who share the gospel wherever they go 
So listen carefully. The way in which God executes his providential designs is through the willingness of God's people to obey their Lord and carry out his commands. I mean, Joab knew that that day on the battlefield. And Paul certainly knew it as well as he entered into into Corinth. God's providential designs never makes us passive. It makes us active. Now, this is going to age me just a bit, but, you know, when I was a kid, there was a television program, and it always began with the same song. Que sera, sera, someone saying, whatever will be, will be. And in truth, that is the idea of fate. Whatever happens just happens because it's meant to happen. Hear me now. People who believe in God's providence never talk that way. They talk about God's appointed designs. They see themselves as willing to engage in mission. They see the mission that they're involved in as being a success. It will not fail because God is in it. We bring courage to every battlefield because we serve the Lord our God who rules over all, and for that reason we take courage. I end with one illustration. When Hudson Taylor left for the mission field, some told him, Hudson, if God wants to save the Chinese people, he's going to do it without you. And Taylor said, God does want to save the Chinese people and he has chosen me to go. See, that's the difference between a belief in mere fate and a confidence in the providential designs of God. John, I'm not sure how much this relates or doesn't relate, but I remember early in my ministry as a church planter, uh, I was very stressed out until I came to the just the acknowledgement that God doesn't really need me. He, he's asked me and privileged me to serve him for his purposes, but he doesn't really require me. And the burden of ministry almost rolled off my shoulders. Yeah. You know, I remember having a, a prof in seminary tell, tell us, he said, uh, you know, men, uh, you're not the Messiah. The job has already been taken. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. That, that. I've often, often contemplated that. So, you know, it's interesting. We've been talking about this thing called the providence of God and, and how many different extremes people take either on one side of the fence or the other. So God's not providentially in control. Everything depends on me. That's, you know, that's one perspective. The other is, you know, God's providentially in, in control. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, and it's amazing how the scripture holds us fast and brings us back to that place where we recognize that God calls us to act. He has providentially designed that we should act and we must. Uh, and so obedience is called for and yet we trust God at the same time. And what a great pleasure to serve him. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Want access to all your favorite Back to the Bible content right at your fingertips? Then be sure to check out our free app, There you can listen to your favorite audio messages, read the Dr. John and Company blog, watch video sermons from Dr. John, and even access a digital Bible. Perfect for on the go. We strive to make Bible teaching and engagement resources as easily accessible as possible to as many people in as many ways, both nationally and internationally. To download the Back to the Bible Canada app at absolutely no cost to you, simply visit your app store and search Back to the Bible Canada. And for more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
And on behalf of the whole ministry team, thank you. It's your support that allows us to make Bible teaching resources such as these possible.